Our psalm of the day comes from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as, as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Galatians chapter 2. We're reading verses 11 through 16. Hear God's word. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Folks, we just read about your one great hope in life, not to be condemned in front of God. And y'all are a little sleepy today, so I'm going to give you another shot. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and for the truth of the gospel, the free justification of sinners through Christ and Christ alone. And we ask, God, this morning that you enliven our hearts with this truth that we believe and we trust. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Roughly 20 years ago, I began running in order to exercise, and I have a love-hate relationship with running. The reason that it's basically done is the most efficient form of exercise I can find. It doesn't cost a lot of money. It simply requires shoes and some clothing. It's easy. 
But when I first started out, I was told that I needed to get a decent pair of running shoes. And so at this point in the mid-1990s, I don't know if you remember the New Balance 990. Everybody wore them. And so I needed a pair of New Balance 990s. And so I ordered them online, got the proper size, put on my running shoes, and went out on a five-mile run. I decided to start aggressive. I remember it was an autumn evening. It felt fantastic. And I was thinking, I'm really going to get along with this running thing. Just peachy. This is going to be great. A new future for me. And the next morning uh, when I woke up and I got out of bed, I noticed that things weren't so peachy. In fact, my right knee would not bend at all. (laughs) It was completely stiff. I'd never really had anything like this. I was the grand old age of 21 years old. And and so why was my right knee not bending? And so I called a few people who might be knowledgeable who could help me with this, and they all asked me one question. Each of them, it was consistent. They asked me what kind of shoes I had. I said, no, you misunderstood the situation. I can't bend my knee. I'm not talking about my foot. I'm not talking about my shoe. I want you to tell me why my knee won't bend. And they said, perceiving my hard-headedness, why don't you just go to the running store? You need to go to a good local running store. So I go to the running store. I tell them my predicament. And they say, well, what kind of shoes are you wearing? So I decided to to relent. And I told them, the New Balance 990, it's a great shoe, but that's not the problem. It's my knee. And so then what they did at that time, they've gotten some better technology at this point, but they would put a pair of shoes on you and take you out on the sidewalk. And the person would bend down and watch you run. And they would watch the way that your foot struck the ground. And I heard some groaning from behind me. It's rather embarrassing. (laughs) And then we went back inside. And he said, well, here's the situation. The New Balance 990 is exactly the opposite kind of shoe that you need. You see that you're, you're considered a heavy runner. When you're over 200 pounds, they class you a heavy runner. And heavy runners tend to overpronate, and that means that your arch presses in heavy. And the New Balance 990 doesn't help compensate for your arches pressing in so heavy. And as your foot comes in in this way, it brings everything in your leg out of a line, and it actually puts stress on the outside tendons and ligaments on your knee. And that's why your knee won't bend. Things are not in alignment. They're not properly working. It's not lined up right. And so we need to put you in this shoe called the Brooks Beast. (laughs) This will bring you into proper alignment for your running. And you'll never have knee pain again. He's been right. The things were not properly aligned. And it was putting stress and tension on parts of the body that seemed unrelated. But friends, that's what happens when things are not lined up right. When they're not in alignment, when they're not in step, there's, cause, there's a cause of stress and pain everywhere else. Things don't work. This is true in our bodies. It's true in our cars when they get knocked out of alignment. And it's especially true in a church. And this is what Paul is addressing the Galatian congregation about. That things were out of line, he says in verse 14. That they were not in step with the truth of the gospel. He says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
Paul understood that the church was out of line, that it wasn't in alignment, and this was causing stress and tension and fractures and was going to seriously injure the truth and cause of the gospel. And so he wanted them to pay careful attention. So even with the shrill voice and with passion and and polemic, he comes after the issues because he thought everything, absolutely everything, was at stake here. He wanted them to come back into alignment. And so we, too, need to pay careful attention to what it means to stay in line, to be in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, some of you may think, Chuck, why do we really need to consider that? We're a Presbyterian church that has a confession of faith that anchors us to keep us in line with the gospel. That doctrinal statement keeps us safe, some of you may think. And then you say, we're a church that talks a lot about being gospel-centered. And we repeat that over and over. So why must we beat that dead horse one more time? But I want you to consider something. Paul has this confrontation with the apostle Peter in Antioch. Antioch in Acts chapter 11 is the cosmopolitan multiracial, evangelically zealous church of the first century. It is an awesome church. They were the church responsible for sending the missionaries around the Mediterranean. They were sophisticated. They were educated. They were thoroughly and wholly converted. And they had apostles in their presence. Peter and then other heroes of the first century, men like Barnabas were there. Paul was there. And yet what happened Despite all of that great history, despite all of those accomplishments, despite the accolades, despite the education, despite the sophistication, what happened to that church? Paul says they were out of of alignment. They were not in step with the gospel. And friends, if that can happen in Antioch, we can be sure that it can happen to us. And so we need to pay careful attention And we need to ask the question, how does a church get out of step with the truth of the gospel? What can exactly happen to us? And there's three things that we see Paul addressing here about how a church gets out of step with the gospel. And first, in verses 11 through 14, we see that it happens when fear directs our decisions. But this is the first way that a church gets out of step with the gospel, when fear begins to direct our decisions. Verse 12, Paul addresses the situation that's unfolding when he arrives in Antioch. He says, before certain men came from James, he's speaking of Peter, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. As you remember last week, there's a great deal of historical context that's necessary to understand exactly the nature of this conflict. But we know from Acts chapter 15 that there were converts from amongst the Pharisees who were intensely focused on the Jewish law. And they wanted Gentile converts to then submit themselves to the Jewish law and become Jewish in order to be fully Christian. The reasons for this seem rather apparent from what we know of the first century. And the strongest reason that we can bring out is that the Jewish religion had been given a certain license by the Roman government to operate 
free from emperor worship. And the early Christians operated under that same license because they saw their faith as the perfection and the fulfillment, the climaxing of Judaism. But then there were certain Jewish nationalists who were not Christians, who were trying to remove the Christians from under their license. They wanted them to be persecuted by the Romans. They wanted to be separated from them. And so there was pressure inside the church. The church trying to keep its license, to stay safe from Roman persecution. And they said, these Gentiles must become Jews. Because if the Gentiles are not circumcised, then they can have no claim on Judaism. It's a very complex situation. And you can see what's driving it. It's fear. And Rome was fearsome. There was monstrous fear at play here. And so these men from James who come from Jerusalem, and we learned about them last week, they come and enforce the Jewish Torah on the Christian converts. And they say, if you want to truly and fully be converted, then you must become a Jew. You must submit yourself wholly to the Jewish law. This is the gospel that they were preaching. It's the gospel that then arrived in Galatia. And of course, the Gentiles would have actually gotten along quite well with this. Unfortunately, all of their religious background had taught them elaborate procedures and rituals for moving up and in once you started into a religious system. And so they delighted in getting further into the mysteries and understanding their, their faith. And so the idea of having further initiations and rituals and obeying rules and laws and going under the knife of circumcision, they would have quite easily submitted themselves to that. And this was the fear that Paul has to encounter. It's the fear that leads Peter to collapse. Because Paul recognizes, Peter, you've been living like a Gentile, not like a Jew, for quite some time. Why are you now collapsing? But it wasn't just Peter, was it? Even Barnabas, one of the great heroes of the first century church, a wealthy and extremely generous man who accompanies Paul on his missionary journeys, who pays a great price for the sake of the gospel, and he too collapses. What we learn about Peter, though, is that he withdraws, he drew back and separated himself out of fear, and that the withdrawal here, the term is actually a political and military one, where it means a strategic withdrawal in order to find refuge. And so Peter very well have been making a pragmatic decision, even though his convictions didn't agree. And friends, we can all do that in life. But you notice that Paul doesn't give him a pass or an excuse because his practice, what he did, was out of alignment with the truth of the gospel. That separating himself from, from eating table, at the table with the Gentile Christians was telling them that they were unworthy. It was telling them that they did not belong, that they were second-class citizens until they had been circumcised. It was to not come to communion with his fellow brothers and sisters. And Paul confronts Peter and tells him that he's sorely mistaken, that this is a, a huge mistake, and it's compromised the gospel. And friends, this can happen in a church's life rather easily. 
where we allow fear and different concerns to creep into our fellowship, and we allow those fear and concerns to begin to construct rules that are added on to the gospel. Typically, I think in our own setting, that fear is normally driven by a culture that doesn't share our values and beliefs. And so feeling pressured by those values and beliefs of the world around us, Christians oftentimes respond by then doubling down. Well, we're going to get really rigorous and serious because we don't want to be impacted by that. And you notice that there's fear in that. There's also some goodness in it, and that's why it gets so complicated. It can be hard to sort out. But all of a sudden in a church's life, when that fear takes hold and doubling down and trying to get everything right, and we start white-knuckling it, and we create a certain culture of fear, and we create a culture where it's following rules and doing things just right and just so in order to protect yourself, in order to keep yourself safe. This is often what happens today. It's a version of the same thing that was playing itself out in Antioch and in Galatia. And so we have to be very careful that we stay in line with the truth of the gospel. Several years ago, I was invited to speak at a student conference of college students where it was an evangelistic opportunity, and so it was preaching on the grace of the gospel. And then after that, I had a meeting with several of the different college ministry staff. One of them pulled me aside after the meeting and said, Chuck, I'd like to talk to you about one of my students, a pastoral situation that I have with one of them. And I asked him, I said, well, what's, what's going on? He said, well, my student is not doing their quiet time. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, he's not following through on the quiet time the way that I've asked him to. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, what I've asked him to do is to do observations, write those out, interpretations, write those out, and applications, and write those out. I said, so what's your problem with your student? Well, he's not doing the three steps. He's reading his Bible, but he's not doing the three steps. And he's not following through every day with the three steps. And so I did ask him. I tried to be gentle about it, but I was never invited back to speak. (laughs) I said, well, you know, perhaps the problem isn't his. That perhaps the, the problem is that you've constructed an elaborate set of rules and now you're experiencing some distance with this student. And have you thought that perhaps the distance that you're having with him is because he feels like a second-class citizen? Because you put a yoke on him, you put a burden on him that Jesus never lays on him. As helpful as observation, interpretation, and application is... Jesus didn't ever put that burden exactly on us. We can't find it in Scripture. And friends, these are the types of things that we do in church, where we just very gradually and subtly, for all kinds of reasons, we accumulate some tartar and start piling it up on top of the gospel. And if you're not doing those things, then you don't quite belong or you don't quite get it. And it's a horrible offense to the freedom of the gospel, is what Paul goes to great lengths here to say. Now, the second piece, though, the second way that we can get out of a line with the gospel. In verse 15, we see that it happens when some sinners 
are privileged over others. Paul is still in his confrontation with Peter here in verse 15. And he says, we ourselves, he is speaking as a Jew. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Paul here is making the statement that Peter, I'm like you. I was born into the nation of Israel, the chosen and singled out people of God. We were the ones who were commissioned to carry the good news to the nations. And Jesus Christ came and shared in our Jewish flesh. But now that he has died and that he has risen, something new has happened. That that Jewishness is not predominant. That the new covenant family is not defined by nature. It's not defined by Jewishness. That yes, there used to be you were either a Jew and righteous or you were a Gentile sinner and outside the covenant. And Paul here mocks that. He says, yes, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He acknowledges that's the way it used to be. But now Christ forms the basis of a new family. That Jew and Gentile are one through the faithfulness of Jesus as he represents them, as he dies in their place, as he rises on their behalf, as he now ascends into heaven and rules on our behalf. We're seated with him. But yet what was happening in Antioch and what was going down in Galatia was that certain sinners were being privileged over others. They were being considered different. That some were given a pass because they had the right of circumcision and others were being told they were second class. But friends, in the Christian church, we don't separate ourselves by class or ethnicity. We don't make second-class citizens. Our separation is by creed. It's believing in Jesus. And that all who believe in him and belong to him, that we are one family and that we can't pull back from the communion table. We don't withhold from one another. And that's what had happened, though, is certain sinners were privileged over others. 1953, Billy Graham, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Ingalls Stadium. He was walking the stadium prior to the crusade there in Chattanooga. And he noticed some ropes had been aligned all through the stadium, marking out certain sections of seating. He asked what the ropes were for. And he was told that the ropes were to segregate the congregation. That whites would sit here and blacks would sit here. They would all be invited into the stadium but we were going to be separate but equal. Billy Graham told the attendants to move the ropes. You can imagine how controversial this was in 1953. They said, sir, we can't move the ropes. He says, well, we'll cancel the crusade. They moved the ropes. And for one of the first times in probably about 100 years, that night, black and white sat in the same seats together Worshiping a common Savior, the one who had sent Jesus into the world to justify them from their sins. There was no privileging of certain sinners above others, but they were one in Christ. And friends, that's one of the things that had gone wrong in Galatia, and it can go so terribly wrong in the church today when we show particular favor to some over others when we forget that the ground is very flat and level in front of God, all have sinned, 
there is no distinction between us, and that we are either made righteous by Christ or we stand in our sins. And that's what we can miss. The final piece, though, of this alignment is found in verse 16. And we get out of a line. We see it happens when anything, no matter how innocent, is tacked on to Christ. Look what Paul says as he continues to speak to Peter. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. There is one key theological word here that appears over and over and over. It caught your attention. It's the word justified. It means to be declared in the right. It was from the courtroom and for a concept of when someone was declared to be acquitted of charges. It's a certain way that the courtroom worked in the first century. It's slightly different than the way the courtroom works for us today. But a judge would sit upon his seat at, at, at the beginning of the day as the sun rose, and he would then administer justice. And two parties would come. One was being accused, and one was making the accusation. And the judge would then declare who was in the right. That is, he would declare who was acquitted, who was justified, and who was condemned. Those were the two opposites justified and condemned. And Paul here uses this language to speak of how we are made right with God. And he gets into the fine details here where he explains that we are not justified by works of the law and that it, the ESV says to us, but through faith in Jesus Christ. It's one technical point here that needs nuancing. This phrase, faith in Jesus Christ, I own actually five different books that deal with the controversy around the translation of this phrase. But this is a delicate matter. It's a, called a genitive in, uh, in Greek language, and it can be translated several different ways. There's what's called subjective genitives and objective genitives, and the ESV editors decided to go with the objective genitives. And on three days a week, I think they're right, and on four days a week, I think it's the subjective genitive. But I am fairly convinced that the subjective is right, and this is the way that it would read. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Because what Paul here is comparing is he's comparing the law of Moses and the, the way of Judaism against the way of Christ. Okay? He's not comparing human works to human faith here, I don't think even though that contrast can be drawn. But the impetus and force of his argument is to talk about the grounds of justification. How does it happen? He's saying it doesn't happen by becoming a Jew. That's not what makes you right with God. That the way that we're made right with God is on the basis of Christ, that he's the ground of that, and he alone. Because, friends, when we go to stand in the tribunal and the accusation comes... The accusation has merit, doesn't it? Who can stand there and deny that they haven't sinned? When our great enemy, Satan, makes the accusation against us that we're worthy of death and that he has a claim upon our lives, he can rightfully and justfully do so. 
He can pull us down into death, and we're condemned. And so what kind of hope can we have to be acquitted? The only hope is that there is another human being who was faithful to God. He was the God-man, Jesus, fully God and fully man, but he faithfully served God without sin. He's the righteous one. And so when he stands and is accused, and when Satan takes him down into death, he had no basis to do so. And this is why Peter himself in Acts 2 says death couldn't hold him. Why? There was no just accusation. There was no sin. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ, he was without sin. And friends, that's our only basis and hope of justification. That we have no hope in our own works, our own efforts, that it only comes through Jesus and that he stands for us. And God declares that he's righteous, he is justified, he is acquitted, he's innocent. And then by faith and believing in Jesus, his verdict becomes your verdict. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. His acquittal is your acquittal. And that's a sure and a certain hope that can never be improved on. And what Paul sees playing out here in Galatia is that supplements to that justification were being offered. Do this also. Do that. Don't do this. Become a Jew to fully convert. And his contention is that a supplemented Christ is a supplanted Christ. To add on to Christ is to abandon him. That it doesn't work. That the grounds of our right standing, the grounds of being righteous, are Jesus and Jesus alone. What God has done for us, not what we do for God. That's what Paul contends here. And friends, to stay in line with the gospel, it means that we keep Jesus at the very center of all of our hope, of all of our confidence, of all of our activity, that the free grace of God and the justification that he offers to us that brings us into one family, that is for all men, Jew and Gentile alike, of every color and of every class, and that there's no distinction, that all who belong to him are made right, and we don't add to it, we don't supplement it. Friends, that is being in line with the gospel. That's walking in step with the Spirit. Let's make sure to ask God for grace to do so. Far greater churches have fallen short of that. And God must preserve us that we hold fast to that grace. Let's ask him for help to do so. Father, we recognize our vulnerability in this. We know that the message of free grace and justification that comes from you is wonderful, and yet we also chafe against it in so many ways. Help us to hold fast to it, to not try to improve upon it or add to it. Strengthen us as we look to Jesus. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.